Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. And I heard Greg Brooks say, you look like shit. And I was like, oh my God, he's talking to me. <laughs> That and more. But before all that, a little bit of this. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com Your images to upload. With Squarespace.com, your site will look great on any device. Building state-of-the-art web pages and blogs has never been easier. So try Squarespace.com today. God, my lungs. That's right. Risk is brought to you in part by Squarespace. It is the all-in-one website platform that makes building your own website simple and easy. Squarespace has gorgeous templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and super responsive design. For a free trial and 10% off your first order, go to squarespace.com and enter the code RISK. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Also, you do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently, but constant trips to the post office just get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping 
easy. Use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Stamps.com does all the thinking for you. With a digital scale, it calculates the exact postage you need. It helps you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. You can join over half a million small businesses that use Stamps.com and you'll never go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it and right now you can use our promo code risk for this special offer it's a no risk trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer that includes that digital scale and up to fifty five dollars free postage so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk that's stamps.com enter risk Now, we're calling today's episode Hush Hush, and in a little bit, we're going to hear from Reba Sparrow at the Mystery Box Storytelling Show in Portland, Oregon, but before that, a little something from yours truly at the Risk Live Show in New York City. Now, here's the show. month when I said uh, over a million downloads, but it happened again. We keep getting more popular. Uh, So uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome to Risk. If you don't know, if someone just grabbed you and threw you in this theater, (laughs) Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So it's the kind of show where you're going to hear stories that you might not hear on NPR. Uh, It's been a while since I've told this little anecdote that the very first time we did the show, a guy asked me, would it be inappropriate if I told the story about the time I threw up into my girlfriend's vagina? (laughs) I said, no, that would be so appropriate. Uh, (laughs) So... It's been, uh, it's been a, we've had so much, I've been having too much fun lately, is kind of what it was. How many people know who Dr. Drew is? Do people know who Dr. Drew is? You know who Dr. The reason I ask is because I really, I don't watch television, and it's not because I'm an intellectual or something, it's because I can't figure out how television, you know, what, where is it? Where is it going on now? Where are the things? What do I have to buy? It's all too confusing. I'm, I'm, I'm a very simple man. Uh, but I didn't know who Dr. Drew was, but someone said, oh, uh, you have to do Dr. Drew's wife's podcast today. I was like, all right. I, who's, I guess I'll figure out eventually who Dr. Drew is, but also who's his wife. Turns out Dr. Drew is enormously wealthy, right? And they have this, uh, they have an apartment on the Upper West Side which was designed by Q, uh, James Bond's designer. (laughs) 
every, the entire apartment is run off of an iPad, and you can just press buttons and make rooms swivel, and theaters come down, and sound systems shift around. It's very frightening. Uh, Dr. Drew's wife, uh, Susan Pinsky, is obsessed with clairvoyance and psychics and mediums, so she invites interesting personalities, and she had determined that I am an interesting personality, to come to her place and get read by a psychic. So I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing today. I'm heading there. The last time I was read by a psychic, it was also in an entertainment venue, right? It was at a storytelling show. And this psychic determined, she was like, you had a pet, a very, very small pet when you were a child. I was like, yes, 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 I had a little mouse. And she said, oh my gosh, he died tragically. I was like, yes, Rav, Rav broke his neck on his water bottle and went into convulsion. She's like, Rav would like you to know that all is forgiven and he is at peace. So that was, that was very heartening. Uh, but today I was walking to this podcast to talk to this psychic and I thought, you know what? I wonder if she is going to be able to put her finger on the thing I have been obsessing and obsessing and obsessing over lately. And that is this voice in my head saying, Kevin, you've got to sober up. <laughs> You have just been playing too hard these past few years, and you're lucky that things are going so well, considering how fucked up you are consistently getting. You've got something that's very meaningful to people to take care of, and you've got potential other projects in the future that you have to have the health and the energy and the stamina and the clarity for. So I sit down with the psychic, who supposedly doesn't know anything about me, right? And I say to the psychic, we're recording all this, I say, do you need like my phone or so? You know, because they usually like want an object to feel to get your energy. She's like, no, you've got energy bouncing off of you. She said, Kevin, you need to sober up. <laughs> You have, I'm getting a, a successful project right now, but uh, you know, it's a little bit at risk because uh, you've been fucked up so much so recently. And there's another project that might be on the horizon that you're gonna need some energy and clarity and focus for. And I was like, holy fucking shit. I was completely blown away. And I was like, I, I think that tomorrow, Friday, I should sober up. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I had pretty much determined already that that was the plan. But hearing someone say it like that was amazing. And then she got this slightly horrified look on her face. And she said, now I'm seeing some strange sexual activity. I don't know if I should talk about that. And I said, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I talk about a lot of my sexual activity in public, but... There are some sexual activities I engage in that can't be talked about until mom is dead. <laughs> so I don't want you spilling the beans, Miss Sophia, Claire, you know, whatever they call him, Psychic Sophia. Um, all right, so uh, the, I want to tell this one. It's kind of an oldie, but it's on my mind specifically because of what I was just talking about. Um, 
The day that you graduate from NYU is kind of a beautiful affair, right? Washington Square Park is just filled. It's a sea of purple gowns and hats. There's thousands of parents that have flown in from all around the world. And it's just a really impressive looking affair. My parents were flying in from Ohio the morning of my graduation from NYU. And I could just picture them that morning reading my father's Bible, probably sharing it between them. My father's Bible is he loves it so much because it's this rare edition and it's so beat up from being so well read that it's held together with a bunch of tape and rubber bands. So I'm picturing them coming in that way. And you know what? I had kind of been at church myself that morning, but in a slightly different way. <laughs> the night before, I had been at this club called The Limelight, <laughs> which was a dance club back in the day that took place in an old church, right? And what I had discovered during my heady partying days of college was that on the gay night, if you walked all the way up the spiraling staircase to the steeple where the bell was held, they kept all the lights out and gay men had sexual relations in that room. Oh, I fell in love with that place. I spent so much time there. I gave my first rim job in that room. Uh, and it was just so atmospheric. You, 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 could, you could smell more than you could see because it was so dark up there. So that's where I was the night before my graduation, right? The morning of my graduation, I wake up, maybe it's about 7.30 in the morning, I am way hungover. And I notice that I'm kind of itching down here. I get up and I think, wait a minute, a part of my psyche is realizing I've been itching down there for hours. I've kind of rubbed myself raw unconsciously with my hand and I look down at what's going on down there and I see in my pubic hair a little brown speck move. Oh my God. I said, let's assess this situation. It's 8 a.m. My parents are going to be knocking on my door at 10, and graduation is starting at noon. And in a church last night, I just got crabs. <laughs> and believe it or not, I was familiar with these things. <laughs> I had had them before, and I've had them since. Um, <laughs> So I knew, I knew that these guys have the potential to live on what is just a piece of clothing for at least a few hours and can jump into another person's trajectory. So all of a sudden I'm having this nightmare vision. I'm hugging my mother. 
and a little brown speck is starting a little brown journey across our clothes, and I'm the first man ever to give crabs to his mom. So I just flew. I was like, this is war. I've got no time. I've got to get going. I got out a razor. I started shaving everything off. I was shaving the backs of my hands, my kneecaps, my ass, everything. I looked like a fucked up candy cane. Because there was just streaks of blood going down my pale body. Then, on top of that, I had to use that insecticide shampoo, which just sizzles on the raw flesh. And then I'm realizing, oh my gosh, it's 8.30. I've also got to do all the laundry, right? And I've only got maybe an hour and a half to do that. So I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. Wipe all this blood and shampoo off. Get everything. Get, get the tablecloths, the couch cushions, everything. I've got like six big black garbage bags. And I'm kind of walking down the street to the laundry. And I'm realizing on the way, oh no, holy fuck. I've been so drunk and stoned lately. I forgot to get my parents' tickets to the graduation ceremony. So I get to the laundry, I put it all in the wash, and I start using my change there with the payphone, just calling any 998 number, because that was NYU, and I figured eventually I'd, I'd hit a good one. I finally did get to like a main information line, and the recorded voice said, if you don't have tickets to the graduation today, the only option left is to watch it on a closed circuit TV in a little classroom in the main building. I'm like, oh my God, Kevin, your parents have sacrificed so much to get you here. They could not afford to send me to that school. And here they were flying up for the occasion. I'm still really mortified with myself about this. Uh, but what could I do? I thought, oh, the most courageous thing I could think to do was write them a note. <laughs> I was like, here's what I can do. I can write them a note and put it on my apartment door and say, Mom and Dad, NYU really fucked this one up. <laughs> I have been running around this town trying to rectify their ticketing mistakes all morning, but it looks like you're just gonna have to watch it in this little, you know, classroom. I'll meet you after the ceremony. So I run home and I put that on the thing and then I run back to the laundromat and I'm ready to put all the laundry in the dry when I realize, oh my God. I don't have money to dry most of these clothes. I spent it all at the sex club last night. My money plan for the day was just ask mom. So I'm like, oh my God, okay. So I start putting as much as I can back into bags. And now what was like 300 pounds of laundry is like 12,000 pounds of laundry because it's all sopping wet. So I'm kind of walking back like Buster Keaton with all these bags and sweating and bleeding and just a total mess and I run right into mom and dad. And my mom says, Kevin, why are you doing all of the laundry at once? And I said, oh, well, you know, it's just that 
I have crabs. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else to say. So now all three of us can't think what else to say. Well, it turned out okay. They were very forgiving about watching it in the little room. I'm still so humbled by that. And the graduation went beautifully. They met all my friends from the state and all that kind of thing. And then the next day we went to the Museum of Modern Art and dad was walking around the sculpture garden and there was this moment I'll never forget. I'm sitting at this little table out there in the sculpture garden with my mom and we're looking at uh, Picasso's goat and she reaches out and she grabs my hand and for the first time I can feel how fragile the bones in her hand are starting to feel. And it gives me this feeling of, oh God, am I gonna have to take care of them someday? And she says to me, she says, Kevin, I'm so proud of you. You've put down roots in this gigantic city. You graduated from NYU and made so many talented friends, but I still just can't help wondering, when are you ever going to grow up? <laughs> and tonight, on the eve of my determining to sober up tomorrow, I'm wondering the exact same thing. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've got a big bag of crops here. I gotta put them in my mouth, oh yes. I'm gonna run around the town on a market day. Everyone look at me and say, I've got a I was sitting up in bed with my boyfriend at the time, Michael. And he had his head leaning up against my chest, and he was looking up at me with these dark doe eyes. And he had this really thick, curly hair that I like to run my fingers through. And he looked like a good 10 years younger than he was. We were in our early 30s at the time. And he says to me, I have a request. I know by the tone in his voice and the way that he's looking at me that this is a sexual request. And we'd only been together at that point for about four months, but we had developed a very quick sexual trust in one another, and we'd been experimenting with each other's fantasies. So we were doing a lot of anal play, for instance, because he was really into that, and he bought for me a bed harness but that goes between the mattresses that would allow my wrists and my ankles to be tied up at the same time. 
because I was really into that. And we were doing a lot of like really violent role play to where we had to have a safety word, just kind of playing around with our fantasies. So when he said, I have a request, I was like, bring it on, what's next? And he takes a deep breath and he seems like kind of hesitant and he goes, uh, I don't know if I want to tell you this one actually. It's kind of fucked up. <laughs> and I was like, no, everybody thinks that about their own sexual desires at some point. I'm sure it's fine. This is safe. You can just tell me. And he was like, yeah, no, it's really bad. And if I tell you, I'm afraid you might break up with me. And I was like, Michael, you know, you don't have to tell me. But if you do, I am, oh, I'm such an open person. Like, you can just tell me. So he finally looks up and he takes a deep breath and he says, okay, I want to suck on your tits and call you mommy while I get myself off. Now, being the very open person that I am, this wasn't that big of a request. But coming from my background, he couldn't have said more terrifying words. So let me back up about eight years prior to this moment when I found out that I was pregnant. I was ecstatic for two reasons. I was gonna be a mom and my tits were going to get bigger. So I grew up in a household with a mom and a sister who were very well endowed, and they liked to remind me on a regular basis that I was not. My mom was constantly telling me that I had my Aunt Karen's tiny tits, and my sister was like, oh, but it's fine because you don't have any hips either, so at least you're proportionate. <laughs> yeah. And even my brother, my brother was like, oh, you're so lucky, you're never gonna have to wear a bra. Cause he, I, I had what he, he liked to call my boobs starts. And he was like, starts are perky, so you're fine. So to them, this was just like a big joke. But to me, it planted a seed like really early on that my body wasn't enough. That I wasn't feminine and therefore I wasn't attractive. And I was also born with what's called a protruding sternum. Um, if you look at me from the side, I'll show you in a moment, you can kind of see it, but not really, because I'm really good at hiding it. Um, I have a lump sort of in the middle of my chest here. And it's just, it, it like mocks my boobs. It's like, <laughs> it's like I'm this big lump in the middle of your chest, like next to these tiny little mounds, ha ha ha. So I've always had this insecurity about this area. So when I found out I was pregnant, I was like, yes! Because at some point, my milk is gonna come in, right? My boobs are gonna get bigger than my sternum and I'm gonna look like a real girl. So at like eight and a half months, my, my milk did come in and I threw a small party for myself in the aisles of Target. <laughs> because I was able to buy a size C bra. <laughs> and about like a month and a half, well, like a month later, my son was born. And the first thing they taught me in the hospital was how to breastfeed. Now it's not 
as simple as you might think. You think it's just like expose boobs, attach infant, go to town. But it's more complicated than that. So they taught me to form my hand into the letter C and then cup my breast and massage with my thumb to help encourage milk flow. And they also told me to hold the baby in what they called the football pose. So his head is looking up at me and his body is like going lengthwise this way, which felt really uncomfortable. And I was like, what? Nobody told me. Like, I'm used to seeing the traditional hold the baby this way. And that's what I wanted, you know, but they were like, no, do it this way. And then (laughs) the nurse said, but before you try, because you got to teach the baby before you try, I want you to wear this nipple shield. <laughs> I'd never heard of a nipple shield before. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it's like a plastic nipple that looks similar to what you would find in a baby bottle, but it kind of suctions to your boob. And it's supposed to help the baby to nurse. And I was like, wait a minute, shouldn't the baby like instinctually know how to nurse? <sighs> Oh my God, the nurse knows my tits are inadequate. (laughs) And I felt horrible. I was like, there's something wrong with my boobs. There's something wrong with my nipples. She knows that I'm not going to be able to breastfeed this baby. And I have to tell you, I was really attached to the idea that my breasts would now have a purpose, like a function. Because before, their purpose and function was to be voluptuous and sexy and attractive, and they failed. So now they had the opportunity to redeem themselves in motherhood. And I was like, oh my God, I fail already. So I put the nipple shield on because I was young and I didn't know what else to do. And the baby started nursing. But the problem was when I got him home, he wouldn't nurse without the nipple shield. And I I know. I really wanted that skin on skin contact to help you know, create that bond. And it's a very special thing when you're nursing your child. And it really, like, I kept trying. And he just, like, would turn away every time. And I felt horrible. I felt like a failure as a mother. And I was like, these fucking tits have done it again. So I started to, I was really, really stressed. And what happens when you're nursing and you get really stressed your milk flow will stop the more stressed you get. So I stopped producing as much milk. And my son, so he wasn't drinking enough, and he started to lose weight. So I went to a lactation consultant, and she basically told me that um, my milk flow was inadequate and that um, I had to stop nursing and that I had to feed him formula, and if I didn't, then he could die. So... That was one of the worst things anyone has ever said to me in my life. And I just spiraled into a really deep postpartum depression. I couldn't look at another woman breastfeeding uh, on TV even, um, in public or in her own home, without having a really horrible resentment and jealousy Um, I even wished, no, not even wished, I like hoped that when my friends were pregnant that they would have problems breastfeeding so that I wouldn't feel that resentment towards them. So when Michael said to me, 
I want to suck on your tits and call you mommy while I get myself off. I was terrified, like completely terrified. I was like, there's no way this is going to work out for you, dude. (laughs) Because these tits aren't big enough to be sexy and they're not maternal enough to fulfill your fantasy. This is a complete disaster. And while all this is going on in my head, I'm silent, right? So he starts to freak out. And he's like, oh my God, why are you quiet? Why aren't you saying anything? Oh my God, oh my God, I knew it. You're gonna break up with me. This is horrible. I shouldn't have said anything. He's just, he's just freaking out. And so I, because he had expressed such hesitance in telling his fantasy to me, I didn't want him to think that there was anything wrong with his fantasy because I didn't feel like there was. So I was like, oh my God, I have to do this. I just have, I have, I have to do this. And so I, he, he's like freaking out, freaking out. And I very robotically, mechanically said, hush, baby. (laughs) It's time to eat. And I formed my hand into the letter C. (laughs) And I cupped the breast, exposed, started massaging, (laughs) attached man child. (laughs) And then I was just like stiff, just like stiff as a board. (laughs) And he just, he like, he like latched on. And he looked up at me and he smiled. I think he was kind of in shock that I was like going through with this. And I was kind of like cradling him very awkwardly. And he was just so happy. (laughs) And that felt nice that he was happy. And he started to nibble on my nipple a little bit. And I was like, all right, but you're not going to be satisfied. We'd like do what you got to do. And he, and he started to nibble a little bit, and he just kept smiling. And because he was smiling, like, that made me feel good. And I got, like, a little bit of a tingle. You know, the one that, like, starts here and that goes down to the lady zone? <laughs> I got a little bit of that. And I was like, okay, this isn't that bad. It's not good. But it's not that bad. Um, and then he just kept going for a couple minutes, and I started to relax a little. And then he pulled away, and he switched to the other side. <laughs> And he was still, he's like playing around on the nipple and suckling and just smiling so much. And he started to stroke himself. And I was like, oh, that's actually hot. Just seeing him like take pleasure in me was hot. And then, I will never forget this, he pulls away and he looks up and he says, mmm, mommy. Tastes like cantaloupe. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't know, breast milk actually tastes like cantaloupe. Like, not just mine, but like universally, it tastes like cantaloupe, which is a super weird thing to hear while you're having sex. So, (laughs) 
I laughed. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I laughed, and that helped me to relax even more. And he he laughed a little bit too, which is always good, I think. And um, and he just kept sucking and sucking, and then he was just jerking himself off. And I started to feel really empowered. And I and then I felt like really sexy. And then I felt a completely hands-free orgasm. <laughs> And that sent him over the edge, and he just shot his wad all over both of us. <laughs> and we both collapsed on the bed. And he looks at me, and he goes, wow. And I was like, yeah, wow. <laughs> and I have to tell you, after that happened, all that resentment that I had for those women for eight years, gone. I didn't have any jealousy, any resentment for any of those women. And I'm not trying to say that if you've had a trauma, you should sexualize it and things will be great. <laughs> Maybe they will. But for me, taking something negative and deriving pleasure out of it really helped with that healing process. So now, I am the very first person to ask my partner if they'll suck on my tits. <laughs> and maybe call me mommy. <laughs> you know they all say that you're much more than this best up face deserves they don't get you need the dishes I serve And I don't tell them cause your dignity comes first I've got to keep you coming home Got to love you Every night Got to This is Risk. This is Joseph Salvat behind me now. And we just heard from Reba Sparrow. She is one of the producers of the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. They are a fantastic storytelling show. We've run several recordings that were made at their show in Portland on the podcast so far. Look up Reba and company at mysteryboxshow.com. Their next show is on June 13th at the Alberta Rose Theater. Speaking of amazing live shows, Risk has a bunch coming up. If you are anywhere near San Francisco on the 28th and the 29th of May, we are at the Verity Club. On the 28th, our theme is Taboo. On the 29th, our theme is Secrets. We're teaming up once again with body storytelling, so the taboo night will all be sexual stories. The secrets night will, some of them be sexual stories and some not sexual at all. We're still accepting story pitches for those shows. 
write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com and you could be a part of one of them. Uh, We're also coming to Reno, Nevada on July 25th. Guys, if you live anywhere near Reno, pitch us your stories. The theme that night is mindfuck. If you know of anyone in Reno, any performance artists, writers, performers, comedians, uh, just interesting characters, people you know who might have amazing stories, have them contact me at kevin at risk-show.com. That's going to be an amazing show in Reno. And of course, we have our usual New York and Los Angeles shows coming up. In Los Angeles, we're going to have at our next show, Ben Garant of Reno 911 and the state, Greg Fitzsimmons, Nicole Byer. That's a huge night. That's the 28th of May on that same night in New York. We will have Ray Christian, Eddie Brill, the great Eddie Brill, and Thomas and Gail Thomas. That's another great night in New York on the 28th. So, guys, come out and see Risk. It's one thing on the podcast, but you never know what's going to happen live. Now, our last story today comes to us from one of our regulars, one of our teachers at thestorystudio.org, and the author of a brand new memoir tomorrow. Tomorrow, Tuesday, is when it is available to buy. Go get it on Amazon. This is David Crabb. His book, Bad Kid, is absolutely hilarious and poignant and shocking and just very well observed, as is everything that David does. Such a talented guy. Bad Kid really should be everyone's beach reading this summer. Super fun. Anyway, here is David now with a story we call Where the Boys Are. Uh, I want to start off by saying that um, due to a head cold and an unresolved shoulder injury, I am on a dreamlike combination of Dayquil and Vicodin right now. It could be amazing. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and uh, I'm really not lying. Uh, and I also, also want to say something. Uh, about five years ago, I walked into a storytelling class with Kevin Allison and the producer of this show, Michelle Walson, and they changed my life. I've had the pleasure to do this show, to teach with Michelle, to teach at Kevin's amazing school, Story Studio, and I really do not think that this book would exist without them, and I meet so many people in the community that would not be doing what they do if it was not for you guys. So thank you so much. You're you're awesome. Now, um... When I uh, was in middle school, I liked all the shows that the other kids liked. I like Different Strokes, Silver Splo- uh, Spoons. See, it's happening. It's the Vicodin. Um, growing Pains. Uh, but I loved Kirk Cameron. And I always remember when I was about uh, 11 or 12, he made a joke, and I thought, I want to hug him really hard. Like, ooh, I want to hug him, like, for so long. So hard. Um, 
And I started to, to realize there was something about me that was different, and it scared the hell out of me in the middle of Texas uh, in, in the late 80s. And I tried to deny it. Now, um, part of the problem was uh, is that I have a very supportive mother to an invasive degree. Uh, and I always remember uh, the first day that she was driving me to high school my freshman year, she literally said, like, five minutes from school, Honey, you can tell your mother if you're gay. Uh, she always talked about herself in third person like that. I don't know, I don't know who she's talking about. Like, did you read uh, the puberty book your mother gave you? Are you going to be open-minded at the med- metaphysics course today with your mother? Uh, it was very, very strange. And I immediately started denying it. I said, no, 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 I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And then she started supporting in the wrong way. My mother was very into forensics. She had all, like, the John Wayne Gacy clown killer book and the Ted Bundy book. So she was like, it could be worse, honey. You could be a horrible rapist of women or a serial killer. I was like, no, mom, I'm, I'm not gay. I'm not gay. And then she said, uh, if you had multiple personalities, it would be fine. It would be like I had more children to love. You know? um, <laughs> she was trying, you know. And when we got to the parking circle, I got out of the car and I screamed, I'm not gay. And I slammed the door. A few hours later in fourth period gym class in the locker room, I was never sure that I was gay. Uh, it was the first time I had been around boys. I was 15, around 18-year-old boys who were like men. They had like hairy armpits and they had like deep voices. And in the locker room, I was terrified. I found this little like corner by a locker and I just wanted to like be ignored. And this guy walked up to me, this huge guy with a big dong. He was dripping wet. He was drying his hair with a towel. So his penis was like right in my face, like bung, 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 bung. And he was like, dude, can I use this locker? And that was when I started my mantra for high school, which would be, don't look down, don't look down. And I looked into his face so hard, and I was like, you can use this bitch if you, like, it was almost weirder than if I looked at his dick and was like, you and your dewy balls can totally sit here, sir, you know? It was so uncomfortable. And I remember when that first gym class ended, I walked out, and in the bleachers I saw this beautiful boy. He was sitting there. Um, he looked like a Nagel painting of a man, like, like a male version of like a Duran Duran album cover. Um, he was reclining a few rows up. Uh, he had that sort of Nazi youth new wave haircut, like short in the back, like parting in the front, but little tinted by the sun or lemon, like with the bangs. Um, and he was wearing Ray-Bans indoors broad daylight and he was listening to his Sony Discman which was this cool like slate gray one with neon orange buttons and I looked on the side of his uh, book and he had his name as Greg Brooks and I just kept thinking like once the bell rings I have to say hi to him I even just say hi I can just like will myself to say hi and then the bell rang and I didn't say hi the next few weeks went by and I proceeded to not be able to just simply say hi to Greg Brooks I was so terrified now what I would do in gym class was run laps because uh, the coach said you have options he's like you can do basketball or do baseball whatever you want to do or you can run laps for 45 minutes and that was what I would do because I did not want to fail at sports in front of really cute boys with giant balls Uh, it was not something that I wanted to do so now I started high school pretty chubby but I started to drop the pounds I would like huff and run in the Texas Sun and just like run and run and run and run now over those first couple months of high school, I kept thinking, I've got to say hi to Greg Brooks, and I couldn't, I couldn't. But there were a lot of other things that I was doing because they seemed like the right thing. I decided to try dating a girl, um, so I, I started dating this girl, and it was great at first. All she wanted to do was let me braid her hair and watch Blossom every Tuesday night. She was the perfect girlfriend. Um, 
And then uh, a few weeks into it, she was like sitting next to me at lunch and she sort of like leaned into my face with her tongue like the Little Shop of Horrors plant was her face. And I was like, this is too fucking much for me. Uh, but then I thought, well, I might seem gay if I dump her. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll just treat her horribly until she breaks up with me. And I would try to like not meet her places. It was awful. And in the end, uh, she was deeply religious. So I made her think that I was uh, saving uh, hairs from her comb to make a voodoo doll out of her. She was so disturbed. She had her mother call me after school at home to break up with me. And I will tell you, there was a certain joy in having like a very nervous 42-year-old woman be like, it's just not working out between us, uh, between you and Rebecca. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so, so she broke up with me, and then I decided, well, I'm going to start praying. So I would pray all the time. I would be like, God, you know, I'm a good person. I don't steal. I don't tell lies. I just want you to take these feelings I'm having away from me. And after a few weeks, it became less like prayer to a deity and more like I was very angry at Time Warner Cable. You know what I mean? Like, you missed my fucking window. I've been, I took off work today, God. I hate liking guys. You know, it was just this, like, very angry, aggressive way. It wasn't prayer at all. And it got to the point where, like... I started having these very, you know, teen angsty theater art suicide fantasies that a lot of you, you know, that way that you think about suicide when you're young, where it's just like, I'm going to show them by killing myself, you know? You kind of miss the point that you won't be there to experience. You'll be dead. Um, and I had this very specific thing. I would slip my wrist in a bathtub, and I would be bled out, and I'd be surrounded by beautiful white candles, and Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You would be playing, or any song from I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. And my dad would throw open the door, he'd throw off his cowboy hat, and he'd raise me from the water, and he would see that I had written a beautifully calligraphied suicide note that I'd left for him, like eight pages, and he would read it, and he would hold me, and he would scream, you could have been a poet! Uh, and it would sort of be a tableau that was like part like Pieta, part Pl tune, you know? Um, and then there would be a thunderclap and it would rain in the bathroom. I don't know how that would happen because of the roof, but it would be fantastic. But as time went by, um, the idea of killing myself wasn't something that was about like a lesson that other people would learn. It became just something that stemmed from sort of an emotional exhaustion. I remembered I started having this nightmare that I was running laps at gym in this field. And in the nightmare, what would happen is I would start to levitate. And I would stop for a minute. And then I would take another step, and I would go a foot higher. And I would start to panic, because I realized that if I tried to move at all, I would just levitate. And eventually, I would get up into the ozone, and I would burn up. And I would wake up from this horrible nightmare over and over. And one night I woke up, I went to the bathroom, I had this splitting headache, I went to take an Advil, and I was running the water, and I looked at the caution label on the bottle, and then I put the bottle back, and I took another bottle, just a random bottle, and I read the caution label on that, and then another bottle, and so on, and so on. And then finally my, my mom knocked on the door, and the water was running, and she said, honey, you've been in here for like 20 minutes, what are you doing? And I said, nothing, nothing. The next day I went to school, and this was almost near the end of my first semester of my freshman year, and I hadn't slept at all, and I was, I was this big around. I had lost so much weight from running in the sun. And in the locker room, I remember looking around, and like none of the boys, th there wasn't that energy. There was no like sexual, I was just so tired, you know? And I threw up in the bathroom, trying to be really quiet, because I didn't want to already be the boy that might be gay, and then the boy that's also a bulimic, you know what I mean? I wanted to turn, turn down. I just didn't want people to see me, you know? And I left the locker room, and there sitting was Greg Brooks, you know, with his Walkman, with his sunglasses. He looked like sort of like a new wave, the thinker. Do you know what I mean? 
as usual, like not dressing out because of whatever horrible thing I assume was wrong with him. He was horribly burnt under all his clothes. He had like weird RoboCop legs. He had to WD-40. I had no idea what it was, you know. But he had this like doctor's note or whatever to, you know, to not participate. And I walked up the stairs and I sat down and I was so tired and I was dripping sweat. And I heard Greg Brooks say, you look like shit. And I was like, oh my God, he's talking to me. <laughs> And I turned to him, and I was too tired to be nervous in his presence, and I just said, well, I feel like shit. And he said, well, you know, you, you could have not dressed out today. And I said, well, I don't have a note like you. You know, I, I have to participate. And he said, a note? What are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, like a, like a note to not, like, you know, do whatever you have to do. And he started to laugh a little, and he was like, are you telling me this whole semester you think that you have to have a note to just sit out of gym class? You just sit here. That's how you don't participate. And he started just cackling hysterically at me. And when he cackled, he put his hand on my shoulder. And it was like the first time that I felt like anyone really connected with me. And it wasn't about sex. It was just, a, I felt like in that moment, like I had a friend. And I thought about that whole semester, how I could have been, you know, not dating girls, not running laps, not praying to a guy that I thought maybe hated me. And I started laughing, too. And we laughed so hard together that the coach looked up and said, girls, <laughs> laps till the end of the school year, which was a week. So for that next week, me and Greg had to, like, dress out and run together. And we talked and talked. And we had so much in common. But as much as we had in common, we made these amazing discoveries together that summer. We discovered the band Erasure together. We discovered that we love watching The Hunger together. Uh, we discovered that we both looked kind of nice in black eyeliner together. <laughs> and about six months after I met him, in his little convertible red cabriolet that was full of pot smoke, we experienced another first together where in that moment of total security and comfort, Greg Brooks became the first boy that I ever kissed. Thank you. all for this week folks this is wilco behind me now and we just heard 
from David Crabb. Don't forget to go get his book, Bad Kid, which comes out tomorrow, Tuesday. And don't forget to send us your pitches for those San Francisco shows on May 28th and May 29th. The themes are Taboo or Secrets. And of course, that July 25th show that we're doing in Reno, Nevada. The theme for that one is Mindfuck. Please email us your pitches for that as well and spread the word. Of course, our regularly scheduled every fourth Thursday of the month risk shows in New York and Los Angeles are uh, also on uh, May 28th. So come out and see those as well. Don't forget that Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network, and you can support us there if you go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. We are listener-supported, so be sure to earmark your donation for Risk. Also, don't forget that we teach storytelling as well at the other part of our business, our school. That's at thestorystudio.org. We teach one-day workshops, two-day workshops, six-week workshops. We do one-on-one training over Skype and corporate workshops. There's so much to learn. If you go to thestorystudio.org, we have a very exciting announcement soon about our newest online course that we'll be making available very soon. And so that about wraps it up. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.